always useful and wonderful, and then real versions of things that I've only seen in photograph or reproduction, um, which for an art historian like myself um, tries to be very closely connected with real objects and real things um, is very hard to find. And it's a great honor to be here um, at the National Gallery of Australia. Um, I am not Australian, of course, and my accent will undoubtedly reveal, um, but my brief time in Australia has already brought me here for work on a number of occasions, um, and it is really an incredible resource and a really incredible environment. Um, I was going to make a self-critical pitch about funding trove, but I'm a little interested in that. Um, but it really is terrific to be here, and so thank you very much. Um, tonight's talk, uh, as <coughs> Nathan mentioned, will focus on printing in the Qing court. Um, and as such, it's uh, such a pleasure to be able to connect it to an exhibition like this, because for those of you who have seen the show, um, we're going to spend a, a fair bit of time, as much time as possible, on objects and books that are in the exhibition. Um, so hopefully they will be familiar to you. Many of the images um, are ones that Nathan already provided me, and so may be different pages um, than the ones that you've actually seen. Some of them will be new, some will be new. But in any case, um, hopefully uh, these, in conjunction um, with some other uh, prints and images and maps uh, that Nathan also produced and some of his own work, um, will help to sort of place this show into a larger court painting context. Um, we're going to focus tonight largely on printing in the court under this man, uh, the Kangxi Emperor, who reigned from 1662 uh, to 1704. And this is a good image to start with to sort of give you a nice visual um, themes of the evening. You see here Kangxi seated in what's called a Xing, uh, the, the genre of painting is called a Xingling, or a image of sort of recreation or, or relaxation. This is not a formal court portrait. It's a, it's a casual portrait of him doing something in his own time. And he's actually seated in what is really a very cramped cubicle. Um, if you look behind him, a door that is just to the very left of you um, is being carried by four aides who are carrying a tray um, with a book on their back. And it's a small library um, surrounded by surrounded by stacks of books in the silk-covered library. And the book, um, sort of curiously blank, sits in his lap. Um, and one could indulge in the convenience of that blank reminder that's just sitting there and that he has worked that into his term of court. Um, but the, but the notion of Kangxi as someone who was a voracious learner, a voracious reader, um, is very much in keeping with what we understand about him as a historical person. He was greatly interested in the creative language. He was um, the second Kangxi Emperor and was the last from his previous part of the line. So his first time he could be mentioned um, in the court. Um, but he learned Chinese, he developed a high vocabulary and literature, um, and was both very interested in Chinese history and Chinese literature, and also in what in, in Qing language was known as Western learning, which sort of uh, the knowledge that was being brought over um, from Europe by uh, missionaries, including Jesuits, but also uh, Chinese. 
perspective um, with which this painting is constructed, pictorial perspective with which it's actually uh, pointed the session. We'll speak about that in a little bit, but the perspective involved in labeling and so forth. But it's pointed directly, it's directly the bottom left of the row. And so there's this sort of weird intuitiveness that's going on in this, um, in this picture where we're both sort of looking down and then up at the same time. And the reason I mention that is because we're going to come back several times history, but also its sort of very playful and hybridization with the real, um, with forms of Westerner and the creation of something new, like the idea of dialogue in this country. The other reason we're going to focus on Kangxi, or the primary reasons we're going to focus on Kangxi from a printing perspective um, is, are, are two. The first is that printing during the Kangxi era was both an extraordinarily ephemeral type of thing, um, and also in many ways quite innovative. Um, he, Kangxi, print the, the court during Kangxi era was using printing in a way that I think we can say, just from a modern perspective, as a form of media um, in very interesting ways. He was encoding or building ideological, complex ideologies into original production in ways that And the other um, reason that we're focusing on Kangxi because is that because of the way in which precedent tended to work in Chinese courts, which is to say that the sort of broad vocabulary of rulership, emperorship, the terms on which um, the dynasty operated philosophically um, were often set by the first or, in Qing's case, second emperors, which is the those terms of rulership uh, tended to be established early on and then built on, propagated, expanded, modified, whatever you'd like to put by later years, understanding the ways in which Kangxi became innovative and the types of examples of technology and collaborative technology will serve as a sort of key to understanding a larger particularly by the Chenlong Emperor, uh, the man who's sitting here on the left when he was still Prince Hong, the Prince Hong. Um, uh, and also, I think there are a couple of works, both from the Jiaqing Empire and the Guangxi Principality, which is to say the Guangxi Session. Um, and uh, the, these paintings sort of also sort of set up another uh, theme that I want to talk about some more this evening, um, which is the idea of printing um, like manuscripts, which is to say writing by hand, is that printing like manuscripts, one way of understanding it as being a process of preservation and transmission. That the notion of copying something by hand, whether you're a medieval scribe in a castle in Europe or a monk in a monastery in China, first comes and creates a pre 
visualization of a text that itself we don't want to remember, but that is being preserved in the medium, paper, silk, bending, whatever it is, anonymity, continuity, that is a text. So the notion that we preserve a textual tradition through copying of some sort or another remains with us. It's only These two emperors both doing essentially the same thing, which is preparing for practice, but they both have it in the face of just physical practice and have for every day for 30 years or something like this. Um, pretty good theoretical flexibility. Um, is that this notion of printing as a, as a process of transmission and, and preservation is a sort of interesting metaphor for um, dynastic and imperial succession. Printing was practiced by courts because when you think about um, Chinese political economy, the notion of dynastic succession, the Lu from the Song dynasty, succession, is a notion of essentially, in part, translation, a sort of series of successors that rise and fall within the sort of colonial arc of the Chinese empire. And so printing is a way of demonstrating receipt of and preservation of a sort of custodianship of the broad Chinese tradition over the long tail. Um, and it also is a way of understanding um, imperial succession um, in this sense that I was talking about, this notion that precedents in a dynasty are established and then they're repeated and carried forth and modified, but that there is quite, there is evolved these sort of three layers Thinking dynasties and emperors, a sort of idea of a model being um, copied or transmitted or relayed forward. Printing wise, just to give you a brief sort of crash, two slide crash course on Asian China, um, which I think is useful for a couple of reasons. Printing was invented in China in the sense that we think of printing, which is to say, woodblock mixed with tar and then laying brick and doing it. Printing was invented in China in the 7th century um, and was, as, as belie we believe now, was principally arose more than anywhere else around copy machines, which are the Buddhist texts as they came across the ocean. Um, these are very sort of disseminated across China broadly first. Specific series of cultural practices, however, and if you look at um, the printing of Buddhist texts, for instance, in the Tang court, in the Tang Dynasty court, where you have the Tang emperors and they're painting the Buddhas, um, it sort of runs parallel uh, to the, pra the process or the habit of copying manuscript um, texts, of copying the sutras by hand. Emperors would sponsor um, manuscript copying as a form of, of um, karmic acting, uh, of good practices acting, etc. So a way of accruing merit. You would sponsor the co hand copying of, of Buddhist texts. Um, but they also began to sponsor the production of, of printed texts. And this is actually a very, very famous prophecy of a sort of like a dynasty chronography in India, which developed through later um, production. And it actually was not, is not important. I offer it here 
um, sort of This sort of idea that manuscript and printing are both repetitive practices that through a sort of cyclical habit can accrue merit for the donor or the supporter or even the person who's receiving the copying suggests an idea that I want to um, sort of emphasize tonight, which is the relationship between manuscript or a unique object and printing or a multiple This is important for two reasons. First, as the print scholar Roger Chartier has pointed out, who's a European print scholar, has pointed out, every pre-modern book started its life as a manuscript, which is to say the first thing they did was they wrote it down and then they took it to the printer and they took it to the print shop and someone laid out the print after reprint, laid out the print and created a multiple out of this manuscript. But in China, it's actually, they're even in a sense more intimately related. And then you flip it over on the top of this blanket, and you glue it down with some parchment. And then you take a cloth, and you rub it, and you go very, very, very thin. And then you carve out the print in ink after reprint, and then you wash off the, the, the printed block. And so every book literally starts out as a manuscript, and the manuscript actually sort of gives up its life to become the book there is a sort of integral relationship between these things. And the reason I stress that is because often we talk about printing, I'm going to return to printing later, as somehow diametrically opposed to and divorced from manuscript. Right? We talk about the idea of you know, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Roger Becker makes sort of a, a famous essay in which Benjamin proposes that the essence of the work of art, the aura of the work of art, is destroyed when it becomes a multiple, when it's sort of reproduced mechanically. But actually, I want to argue that the essence of the manuscript remains in the printed object in some really important ways for how objects operate in the world. Um, and so, as a result, that leads to the second point of significance, this relationship between manuscript and code, which is that the two, the manuscript and the multiple, the manuscript and the printed work, can actually end up doing remarkably similar types of, of ideological work or bearing similar levels of ideological significance, whether that is karmic significance in response to the sutra, or cultural significance in form, or as we'll see in a minute, political significance. In the thousand years between, let's say, the invention of print and the rise of the chip, printing exploded in China, um, particularly from the Song Dynasty on, so roughly the 10th, 11th century, and then again very much in the 15th and 16th century. The scale of printing, the volume of printing, the types of printing, the things that were printed over and over, all of this stuff just exploded. Um, such that the book and the print, the imprint, becomes such a ubiquitous part of Chinese, at least Chinese urban life, and actually even Chinese rural life um, in, in different, through different genres and different types of printing. Um, the court, particularly as I mentioned, really sort of latches onto this as a form of preservation, reproduction, and dissemination of knowledge, if you will. And so, um, as I mentioned, it, this sort of 
process of transmitting or copying text using one set, a form of, of dynastic legitimacy. It becomes a key activity in the framing of what's now known um, as, what's now translated as the mandate of heaven, from the, the signs that heaven has bestowed upon the new dynasty of Christ through. Um, and they do, and it represents a sort of form of, a receipt of the mandate of heaven or a demonstration of one's legitimacy for receiving it because of the, of the dynasty that they've demonstrated interest in preserving to the next culture. But it also actually forms a sort of real politique for new dynasties um, because new dynasties have to attract the loyalty of the scholar official class, the elites, who uh, are, are so-called remnant subjects or whose parents are remnant subjects in the previous dynasty. And although the court sponsors these activities, although the court, the emperor pays for these books, he, of course, doesn't actually make the books. Who makes them? The scholars in the court whose scholarship, whose work, whose editing, whose compiling are all these sort of essential tasks in creating a new edition of the Confucian classics, a new edition of the dynastic histories. So they're the ones who are being sponsored by those books. And so this is also a kind of a sort of a, a, a um, especially in new dynastic settings, but even further on in new dynasties. Um, what we see here are an internal print, uh, an internal page um, on the a sort of geography of the Ming dynasty in a general sense of geography, which is to say not only a sort of lay of the land, but also, well, I guess sort of modern geography in the sense that it's, it's really um, you know, what the sort of big productions, where the minerals were, where the famous mountains were, who the famous people were, the sort of history of the empire um, goes through. And you'll note um, just some things that we uh, will uh, look at in greater detail in just a moment. Silk that was used as this material binding, um, the very white quality of the paper, even now six centuries later, basically, which is because this paper, as you see again in a second, has a very high wood pulp content. Um, it's a relatively low acid. It doesn't have any minerals. And also these um, very, very nice calligraphies, very legible, um, but it also has very nicely shaped hands. It looks like This is the historic backdrop to printing in the Qing um, period. Now, just very briefly, I want to introduce the Qing, and I don't know whether uh, earlier lectures in the series or the class with uh, Professor Darnay talked about this at all. David Berger is a fantastic author, so you'll hear more about this from David Berger. My colleague David Berger will talk soon. The Qing dynasty, um, the rulers of the Qing were ostensibly Manchu. We won't get into the aspects of this particular case. But they came down from Northeast Asia. Hopefully, I'm showing you the right page. Um, they came down from uh, from well Manchuria um, with a uh, sort of a group of allies, Mongolians and some Chinese, 
and conquer basically the red part of the GTO, which is roughly the Ming territory of what we now sometimes call the China Empire. And keeping in mind that the Great Wall, which is dotted out there in purple, was as much a, or even more frankly, a sort of conceptual and cultural barrier than it was a physical barrier, because it was a step that you needed to get from across there into China. Um, you can imagine the degree to which the Manchus, as a so-called conquest dynasty, faced a sort of challenging situation when they went to establish uh, both the mandate of heaven and actual pragmatic rule. They were a relatively small population of non-Chinese who were trying to conquer really a large pocket of a large territory of people who actually were a wide variety of different, different ethnicities, but sort of identified as China uh, descended. Um, and this was a sort of cultural conquest this was a military and territorial conquest. Um, it was very much also a sort of conceptual conquest. And a lot of the early printing that occurs um, speaks to this precise project. Now, um, on the upper right, we see, uh, these are both works that are in the, uh, in the uh, exhibition. In the lower left, we'll start there, is something called the Illustrated Manchu Vigils, which I was a little bit unsure about including. And then uh, Nathan and I confirmed when looking at it uh, today that it's actually a manuscript. Uh, it's, it's, it's handwritten. It's not a printed book. Um, but in any case, it demonstrates sort of quickly this notion of Manchus at some point being uh, a distinct ethnic identity and also something that was sort of constantly in play over the course of decades to come. What was Manchu? How did you sort of commonify Manchu? How does it fit within sort of say, just very broadly, that the Manchus were trying to, uh, were trying to maintain uh, a distinctive Manchu identity while also acknowledging and incorporating Han culture, as well as looking at places like Yuan and Mongolia and eventually Tibet and various other places that create this sort of, if not hybrid, but a very multifaceted weird identity. Um, but of more immediate purpose to demonstrate a point, um, and a sort of very important drawing of interesting printing, we see the book on the upper right, um, which uh, I've termed as, as the mirror of the Qing language in Chinese. is a Manchu Chinese dictionary. It's a way of helping people learn to read Manchu. It's a dictionary that was printed but written in the Manchu tradition. And Chinese officials learned Manchu and Manchu officials learned Chinese. They basically ran parallel Manchu petitions. Um, so every petition had a Manchu person and a, and a Manchu translator up and down the line, ostensibly and so dictionaries were a very, very important part of this. And dictionaries are a regular production of people throughout, uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the dynasty. But the printing also started as an outgrowth of Manchu language. Here you can see a little bit more clearly, which was actually an invented script in the early 17th century. And it was derived from Mongolian and Tibetan words in an effort to uh, build up the apparatus by which people could communicate back and forth. Um, and so, Manchu as an identity 
rules or they can translate it through printings, classics can promulgate through printing on a variety of introductory criteria. Among other things, this are, so language certainly was one major genre of thing that were being printed. Um, but there were many, many others. These included classic, the classics, the Confucian classics, the history of Confucianism. Uh, the first book actually released uh, by the Qing court was a history of the Jin, which was a, which was a merchandising movement that came down from Manchuria and Sasan Asia area. They produced that first in effort to sort of demonstrate the legitimate succession of the Jin in Europe. the complete town poetry, which is this ma massive binding of the entire Yunnan sect. And then he also produced a book of despot verses, which was the emperor's greatest hits of town poetry. Um, and which, of course, both of those, uh, the, the Chuangtang Shou, the, the complete poetry of the time, of course, is about sort of this idea of preservation that I talked about, although town poetry was found dated and disappearing by the Qing. It nevertheless had a source of heavy import. The, the, the third one, sort of the, the, the heroes of the Tang poems, conversely, had the function of demonstrating to skeptical Han officials that the Manchu emperor knows a thing or two about poetry. That can sometimes be called indoctrination. this comparison for is an opportunity to compare a little quality. Because one of the ways of understanding Qing printing is its relative quality. The, um, on the right, you'll notice that the characters, and we'll see it better in another image soon, are all kind of square. They don't really have a, a greatly calligraphic quality to them. The lines are quite straight. There's not much variation in the width. Etc. Etc. As compared to say these characters, which look markedly unprofessional. Um, these characters are much faster than they are. Um, you basically, in early in the Song, once commercial printing started to explode, they developed a particular printing font, so to speak, in which you would lay out the sheet, and then the cutter would would cut all the cuts in one direction, all the way down the sheet, and you turn the block and cut them all in the other way, turn the block and finish it off. It was a very very fast way of doing it, but it this blocking skill. This on the left is a much more painstaking one because the goal is to produce the effect of handwriting. And indeed, we'll see in a second a, a preface that actually is supposed to capture the emperor's handwriting. It doesn't because it's much nicer than this. But that's what, what it's supposed to look like, the imperial handwriting. The other thing you'll notice is that um, this paper around the bottom on the right is brown. See some other examples of this, and you may have noticed a couple of pages of the exhibition that were quite brown. Cheaper paper, paper with very high bamboo color, because that's a higher opacity, and so it gets brown very quickly. The paper on the left is very, very fine and quite manageable. It's a sort of broad category. It's called Kanji paper. This paper was very high mulberry color, and so it remains very light and very subtle. You know, still fine. It's 
which is carrying those brown spots on it, but it doesn't degrade in the same way. It's more expensive, and the web of a book like the original comic book, the, the, the Imperial Stone comic book, is much, much smaller. And so in the realm of something like the dictionary, which is really the cult sponsoring knowledge production, right? We want lots of people to have this so they'll learn how to read mansion. It's much larger, the materials are cheaper to provide and things are smaller. And so there is this sort of scale and quality that helps us judge certain things in different ways. Another really important genre um, of printing was that related to calendars. And, and they're closely related subject to astronomy. Before I go on with that, I'll just note, so that in Ulthorne on the left, and the, on the left of the left, is a very good example of the sort of blocky superscript. It's a slightly nicer version of it, uh, but nevertheless, it's a sort of very square uh, figure. And you can see on the right, there's a bunch of The first is their practical aspect. You gotta know what day it is. Because we're operating the lunar calendar, it's a slightly more complex calendar, right? Leap months, several leap months a year, varying numbers of days, changes from year to year. So the publication of the calendar is actually a really, really important thing to make sure your empire, to make sure the train's running on time. That's the calendar. But connected to this intimately is an imperial function. The emperor is the ritual setter of the calendar. And if the emperor sets it correctly, that means he's in communication with heaven. And if the, and the emperor sets it incorrectly, that's a serious blow to legitimacy. What's interesting about this is in the, in the 1680s, in the sort of mid-1980s, there's something that we now know as the calendar controversy, in which uh, the Jesuits at court, in an effort to curry favor with the emperor, pointed out that the imperial astronomers had gotten the date of a key eclipse wrong. And the emperor said, hmm, I don't know. Why don't you both predict this and, and we'll see who's right. Now, the Jesuits turned out to be right. And, uh, and, and therefore, and that sort of won them a sort of serious place in Kangxi's mind, if not hearts, if you will. He, he started to take Jesuit science more seriously than it is now. It's more accurate. What's significant about this, and the reason I want to sort of, one of the sort of key ideas about this interaction with Kangxi and what's what I want to sort of uh, set with you, is the notion that the overall ritual structure doesn't change, right? The emperor remains the key setter of the calendar. That remains his ritual responsibility. All that changes is the year inside, the way the map as we move forward, we're going to see a couple more examples of this idea, of the idea that global thinking about knowledge and global thinking about printing is substantially about a way of like switching all the switch points and making it work a little bit differently. But the sort of broader structure of the notion that the emperor is the ritual setter of the calendar and things like that, that remains consistent within the imperial structure. Exhibition, if there is one thing that this exhibition is sort of stunning, it's stunning for so many reasons. But one of the things in particular that is amazing is this. And I could have shown the map that was used at the advertisement of this talk, 
ridiculous and stuff. But you know, like it's being humorous. But then I was sort of seduced by his rant, which is also not pungent. So I was just violating the pungent clause twice. But this is a really wonderful map, um, sort of in a broadly, if you will, traditional Chinese fashion, uh, traditional Chinese cartographic fashion uh, of the empire produced um, during the Jiaxing reign. which is that map making and printed maps, the dissemination of geographic knowledge is also really important. Sort of like accounting, you gotta know what day it is, you also have to know where you are. And geography is a really very long standing body of knowledge in China. showing it to you here in a somewhat in an inaccurate way. This was done by a student of mine who, who tied all the different sheets, the 41 sheets of this atlas together, and then geo-rectified them to actually show how it looks on paper, which is interesting for a variety of reasons. What's most interesting about this map, though, is the printed version, is first that it was produced uh, by uh, a teams of Jesuit Chinese or Manchu uh, surveyors using um, European surveying, latitude and longitude technique. So really the cutting edge of surveying technology, cartographic technology in the world at that time. And it was printed in copper plate, not wood block. And it was actually the second copper plate production of the Qing dynasty, the first in China. Uh, but you can see that it shows in its exact get in from this huge global view, these 41 sheets, um, and this shows the real powerful introduction of the Qing chapters that made China durable. It was the barrier between traditional areas of ancient China and China. Uh, it showed the geography of at least the core territories of Qing is just tons of loopholes down the rivers. Both Yongzhong up to the south and Shenlong to the new route boundaries also expanding territory of the Qing. One of the interesting things about the Yongzheng Atlas, version of this atlas, which my student for this project demonstrated, was that Yongzheng switches instead of to a receding grid, switches to a square grid, sort of like the Mercator design. What's the effect of that? It makes the north, or Manchuria, look much, much larger. So suddenly Manchuria isn't this little province off on the edge. It's actually like the biggest giant in China. But anyway, um, so, this again speaks to the same idea of printing things that are both uh, strategic or practical use and also printing them in ways that are, that are ideological and meaningful. Um, I think we're going to come back to this thing later because I want to actually have a video reaction to it. Um, the, uh, but if you have questions about what I just zoomed by, absolutely. Um, this notion of ritual role emperor as chief timekeeper, if you will, um, is played out in a number of other uh, settings. The prints I just showed, this notion of him as a right, the ones I just zoomed by, the notion of the emperor as a righteous ruler. Um, but also echoed here in another very, very important production, really actually perhaps the finest single work of printing, arguably, from this one dynasty, just a, in the Kangxi court, the 
so-called illustrations of tilling and weaving of that period. Um, this is printed in a really, if you've seen it, in a very sort of luxurious, I think, thick paper, a very luxurious edition. Um, and it uh, bears the emperor's poems, Kangxi's poems, written across the top, and then scenes uh, on the bottom. And it's drawn from a uh, series of 43 scenes of Riziculture, rice production, and sericulture, silk production, uh, that date back to the Song Dynasty. And not only were rice and silk, of course, really, I mean, they were sort of key products of Chinese agriculture, but they also had this sort of you know, uh, tokenistic quality to them. They were a representative piece of Chinese agriculture written across that period. Um, and so the Kangxi Emperor's production, if you imagine, of a very small edition, because I don't know precisely the edition that was printed in Kangxi, I think the answer is Kangxi, but I think probably the Kangxi Emperor, um, the Emperor's production of a very, very fine edition of this and distribution to a variety of people uh, would have been a demonstration of the seriousness with which he took uh, the role as the sort of chief agriculturalist of the Qing or the Yang. Was one of the emperors written in the role of that. And indeed, this was very important for uh, if you think about in the Ming Dynasty, 1624, the population of China is 1630, so about 10 years, a decade, or around the time of the Ming fall, and the population 100 years later is exactly, is give or take, exactly the same size. The reason I mention that is because actually warfare and famine during the 17th century were awful. They were terrible. China suffered terribly during the Qing Empire's time. And so one of the really important things that Kangxi had to do was, was not only feed the country and rebuild the country, but also demonstrate the seriousness with which he took that role. One of the things that Kangxi is particularly remembered for in histories is the invention, I don't know how much time we actually spend on the, of an early harvest form of rice, which meant that they were getting two rice crops a year, which was, at least in sort of Qing bibliography, was an extremely important way of feeding the nation. Um, this is, uh, speaking of succession, is a sort of rift on by Kangxi's son, uh, the Yongzheng Emperor, who has a version of Kangxi's album. So now we're going from printed. He has a version of Kangxi's album painted. So now we're going in backwards in terms of multiples and unique, but Yongzheng sort of creepily has himself painted into the album. That's Yongzheng there pouring water onto the rice paddy, and he appears in all the scenes doing sort of key things. This is a sort of combination of an acknowledgement of, again, the importance of the emperor in this role, the idea that the emperor, like everybody else, needs to farm, needs to eat, and also a sort of reflection of uh, Yongzheng's also are very rarely hand-painted, hand-colored versions of this album. I've, been, I've read that they were produced in hand-colored versions, and I think that that explains the emperor. I don't know exactly how he would have assessed that, but I haven't seen enough of it to know whether the coloring is, is, is correct. Um, but the other thing this points to, I just wanted to mention this quickly, is again the integration of, of certainly Western techniques into an otherwise Chinese image. Um, we here can see, it's quite illustrated through the, the drawing on the front of the TV, 
people are reading them while they're walking through it, even individual sections. You can see that these images are used, are constructed using a sort of um, a form of modified perspective that would have been taught by Jesuit painters and painters. And again, this points to another example of the way in which printing was one environment in which Western technologies, for example, were integrated into images or ideas or concepts that are otherwise non-significant um, in, in, in largely Chinese literature terms. Depicting the emperor um, directly or indirectly, as we just talked about, is another key um, innovation that comes from printing. And actually, this is, I should, I should have stressed, and I should stress again, while we normally think about print printing as, you know, the, the complete poems of the Tang, the, the 24 histories, or however many histories there happen to be at the time, um, of the reproduction of the Confucian classics, one of the real innovations that comes from printing was the introduction of a lot of new genres and themes, things like printing versions uh, of the um, of Zhou Yunlin is not necessarily so new. The Ming also printed some essentially didactic or moral texts. But here we see something that's totally different. And um, it, this is uh, the Shangdianshi, the, the Magnificent Record of Longevity. It's a book that shows like a hand scroll, so like a long continuous painting, much as these things are usually things that actually started his life as a hand scroll, which we don't have any it's a book that shows the long progression of the Kangxi clan from the 60th birthday celebration of the second emperor, Hu, who sort of stretched from the palace on a soft cloud of sardine verdure and was this sort of large open-air festival for the people. And somewhere in this book is the emperor, though neither in this image nor in the page that has the symbol of the golden emperor on it. Um, but you see here the sort of rich hubbub of Qing urban life. Um, that at this point are probably a sign of tribute, though once roamed all over China. Um, you see officials going around, children playing, festivities, um, entertainments, shops. This is all sort of the sort of grand celebration of the emperor, even though he only rules in the name of the emperor. Uh, it was also copied uh, in another book that is also downstairs. Kangxi's uh, grandson, Qianlong, in his media portrait, there's a similar version of that. And in both cases, what I think they really evoke is a sort of long-standing um, genre of, this, of images of the prosperous realm that date back to uh, the, the Song Dynasty or the Old Song Dynasty, and most famously a painting called Day of the Emperor uh, by Zhang Yunlin, which is something that is a important perhaps for most Chinese painters of this era. And this painting, of which I'm only showing you sort of the most famous snippet, the sort of rainbow ridge, uh, actually starts in the suburbs of the Song capital of, uh, of Yanyang and moves through the suburbs, through from the rural into the suburbs of the city, showing all the different classes of people, from the very poor peasant to the sort of urbanite to eventually the palace kid, as some sort of progresses shows all of Chinese society 
ostensibly uh, just for a mindless continuing around a spring uh, festival, a sort of cold Cairo carnival of some sort. And the point of that really is to say that a prosperous, a, 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 a emperor or a dynasty that has the, possesses the mandate of heaven rules over a prosperous and harmonious realm. And that that same image is very much evoked by the sort of both formal and thematic similarity between something like the Clinton and, uh, and the Qing Empire. Neither of which show the emperor directly, or at least very much, but rather show the sort of trickle-down effect, the, the sort of the effect of the benevolence or the righteousness of the emperor onto the realm. Okay, the last book that I want to talk about, and a book um, that is especially near and dear to me because, as many people say, I just published a book on this book, um, is the uh, imperial poems on Ishtar Shahriyat, or the so-called 36 Reading and you see here, not the copy that we have downstairs, this is actually, if, if memory serves me correctly, the copy that's in my bag. Um, but it's useful for a variety of reasons. It shows the really white printing, or the really white paper that survives. It actually shows some good foxing, so you can see what that looks like, which is that brown spotting that comes up. Um, it shows what is most likely the original blue cover, um, as well as the original title slip. So it's a very good demonstration. The 36 views of Easter Shabbat, or the 36 views of the imperial approach to escape the summer heat, is a book that shows 36 famous spots within the emperor's recently completed summer garden palace uh, in Inner Mongolia, or the province of Shangdu. And it combines, which you can see here on the right, which is other people, uh, you can see here on the left, um, uh, in a short introduction that describes this the particular view, then the emperor's poem about the view, in which he speaks of the trees, they, the birds are pretty, the water is running by, and I sit here and contemplate the Tao of Aikong, you know, it's sort of, I mean, that's sort of the, the encapsulation of the poem. And basically he says, it's a tour of the garden that presented the space that's within the garden as demonstrations of the emperor having attained righteous, attentive, and carefully ruled. Um, and as such, provides this sort of very, very intimate view of the garden. The, um, it's printed in Manchu, in separate Manchu and Chinese editions. It's um, in a very, very small block, about two pages long, but each reordered and soon completed. Um, and as you can see uh, in this yet different version, um, a different copy of it, um, it provides these sort of open, empty views, unlike the very, very populated birthday procession or birthday scroll. Here are these empty landscapes. So the reader just reads this text that the emperor has said, has, has written, gets in mind, and then unfolds the image, which is in, in, insofar as I know, a unique production in Chinese print history. The idea that the image would not be spread over two over two separate sides, but actually be folded within the book, and then you would unfold it for the viewer, um, and allows you to sort of take in the text and then explore this view, unhindered by you know, the, the presence of the emperor or any other people, just on your own. And it provides a sort of virtual access to the garden and to the emperor um, and to the emperor's thoughts that really is unprecedented in Central Chinese history. 
של הגידול, שהוא מחלחל אל המקום הזה, מצד שני הוא פריים של האידיאל, של הרעיון היוצא מן הכלל, של המשפט. As we talk about this, is this book is a ripoff, and in here you have a, a play about the Great Depression from the television drama Depression. Uh, but that poem, uh, poem really has to be corrected. The proper title is the Golden Age version of this, of this poem. At roughly the same time that the emperor ordered Nepnos, he also tells a, a papal legate or a, a member of propaganda here um, named Matteo Ripa. He says that he wants Ripa to teach some Qing artists how to engrave, a thing that Ripa does excellently, um, and then to produce a copper plate engraved version of this, of this, of, of, of this book, um, for reasons that we aren't entirely clear on, but we are really happy to, to speculate on. Um, copies are given to Qing elites, presumably, but also a number of sets go back to Europe with Ripa um, and sort of clearly sell, uh, if you will, the Qing court to European audiences. Um, Lord Burlington supposedly comes into a copy relatively quickly. There is now a copy in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, which for various reasons I won't precisely go into, looks reasonably complete. May have been a gift directly from Kangxi to Lu So we start to see the propagation of a, of a Qing message to an almost global audience. What's interesting is that about a decade before this is commissioned, Louis XIV's very similar collection comes to the Qing court in the form of a huge set of books, which maybe we, I think we actually have here in the National Library of Australia, called the Cabinet du Roi. Um, which is the, 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 the 10-volume mythbook, or enormous mythbook of Qing culture and, and, and religion. But there are these massive, massive, luxurious, oversized engravings of various views of France, including uh, royal politics, bringing through um, Anne of Versailles, but you have the, the Breton, the, the Breton Court. Um, and you'll notice, and I will do something that I was told not to do, but I think really the lesson here continues, you'll notice that there are actually some similarities compositionally between them. They both have this sort of slightly both elevated and frontal view. Um, this composition for a Chinese book is actually sort of nicely sort of weird, um, especially the way in which this is constructed very squarely and slightly constructed regularly. This architecture, you can see it kind of keeps on upgrading on the left. Um, so there are reasons to think that at least the idea of a king depicting his garden in court, and perhaps even the composition of these works, may have been at least partially inspired by this gift that he got from Louis XIV. Not only that, but when they go back to Europe, Burlington, sort of in, in exercising very poor judgment, allows these copies to be used to create copies, or we think it's Burlington's copies, to create copies by a commercial publisher, John Bowles in London, who creates these This is not Chinese enough, not recognizably Chinese enough. So we're going to add some crazy jumps, and we're going to add this bird that makes a, you know, a Sesame Street in the top, and we're going to have fish jumping through the water, all sorts of things that never appeared to sort of make it look recognizable. 
And so the thing that I want to sort of suggest here um, is a couple of things. First, about this album and about the, the project in general. But first, to go back to the liberal critics and the idea of sort of looking through the empty text and thinking about it. This all started as an album of paintings, and it's now lost, but actually there was a unique album of paintings that was not this way in the Middle Ages. But when you think about looking through an al- or a, 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 a garden album, you're thinking about looking through something in a sort of sad kind of vacuum, in a sort of individual vacuum, you're looking at a rock and so this idea of touring the garden alone, looking at paintings alone, reading this book, suggests that there is a sort of real legacy across these different mediums, the individual experience the, of, of doing all these different things that carries from the actually being in the place through the unique object of the painting into the book. So that actually, again, to return to my point about writing, that multiple of the unique And the second thing that I want to suggest is that printing in the chain is really part of a global discourse. A printer, particularly copper printing, and you may consider an engraving moved from its invention in northern Germany to China in roughly 160 years. Printing, or sort of history of engraving, is actually a is, is a global technology in the sort of early modern sense of things spreading across Eastern Europe predictably, but that it also is a vehicle for Qing emperors engaging in a sort of global discourse, um, a global discourse of emperorship, what we might call cosmopolitan emperorship. This was a medium for not only engaging with his immediate constituents, the sort of here and now with Qing real politics, I need to deal with officials, I need to demonstrate my legitimacy, I need to communicate with my relations, it was not only a medium for engaging with the past. I need to place Qing in this long dynastic history and see us as a, as a legitimate successor to history by tying us backwards in time. But I also need to do this horizontally. I need to be engaged in the discourse for power that occurred in France, that occurred in Russia, that occurred in Qing. And print is a medium by which I think we are going to transform. Thank you very much.